Please pray with me. Father God, in many ways, having sung that hymn, we could just simply say amen and amen. We rejoice in the declaration of our security in you. And it's in the knowledge that you are here before us, you go before us, you stand with us, you are our advocate and our redeemer, that we can come with confidence before the throne of grace. Father, please pour out your grace upon us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have a good and worthy task today, which is to speak a word of encouragement to those who are being confirmed and received, and by speaking to them directly to speak to the whole church. And that is very easy and logical to do, because I've already said that this day is a day of renewed discipleship for them, which is God's constant call to us as to be renewed as his disciples. So it's easy to bring it together. To that end, I want to riff for just a few minutes off of that familiar admonition to the church at Ephesus found in Revelation 2, which was read to us today in verses 4 and 5. I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, although I will comment on all the texts that were read this morning, the key to the message is found in this verse. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus does not rebuke them, I want you to notice, for falling out of love that he describes as their first love, their chief love, their most important, their beginning. They did not fall out of love as we describe some feeling that we no longer have. People will say, I've fallen out of love with somebody, so therefore I'm going to change this relationship. They didn't fall out of love. It says, Jesus says, they have abandoned it. They walked away. They quit. They let it go with indifference or even disdain, but more likely indifference or maybe even just busyness. They forgot something. They didn't tend to it anymore. But what in the world is going on with these Christians? We're not given a great deal of information, but I believe we have enough to discern, or at least to begin to discern. The Ephesian church, according to this statement to them, was a hard-working church spiritually. They toil, Jesus says. They endure, Jesus says. They are patient. They cannot bear evildoers in their midst. They are clear and decisive in standing against falsehood. They are willing to steadily continue in faithfulness under the banner of the name of Jesus. They are stalwart and they are determined. Now, when I say that, and even as I read it and think about it myself, what, it, it seems like they're doing so much right, so much that is true, so much that is important. So what could possibly be wrong? Somehow in this faithful, busy, doctrinally correct church, they have turned away from something called love, their first love. Which if we ask the question in the context of the overall message of Scripture, it's clearly answered in both Testaments climactically by none other than, than Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 22, Mark chapter 12, and Luke chapter 10, in each case a lawyer says to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says back to the lawyer, the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandment is love. The first commandment, the chief commandment is love. 
with all that the Christians in Ephesus are doing right, and they are doing much right, from all apparent purposes, the heart is missing. Jesus sees the heart of people. And in this case, he sees empty and dry hearts toward God and toward people. There was a lovelessness that was there. It was thin in love, even though it was thick in terms of stalwart activity. But what does that mean? What is this? What, what does it mean to have this absence of love? It's not easy to understand because, again, in our mind, our imagination, we immediately go to feelings. And we know that that's an unlikely conclusion because feelings of love for God or for people are notoriously fickle. C.S. Lewis, in his classic, The Four Loves, makes it very, very clear that, that times of transcendent love are wonderful, but they come and go. And frankly, I take great encouragement from that because my feelings come and go. But nevertheless, I can still love. And that's one of the great truths of Scripture, is that love is something beyond feelings. It's something richer than that. So what is Jesus indicting them over? Because they do all these right things, and yet he says you don't love. What does it mean to truly love well, especially in the context of a church that does much right, but apparently still needs a heart transplant, right? I have a suggested answer. But before I throw that before you, I want to look briefly at the other scriptures. Just mention them. I can only make summary statements, but I hope you'll actually literally grab these texts and study them. And I mean that seriously. I mean that these texts that were read today are worth sitting with and studying. Psalm 36 paints this vivid picture like a stage play consisting of two dramatically contrasting scenes. Scene one, there's a man lying on his bed in the dark. He is flattering himself and congratulating himself about how clever he is and how creative he is in doing evil. He's plotting trouble and he's embracing sin. He's alone. He's in the dark. It's night. Scene two, it just switches to this majestic panorama of the greatness and the glory of God. His attributes of steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and judgment. The descriptions of God's character are painted on this grand canvas of creation. And they're breathtakingly beautiful. Read Psalm 36. It's an amazing psalm. Well, St. Augustine gives us a term for the first scene. In his writings, he speaks of being incurvatus in se turned in on ourselves, curved in on ourselves. That first scene is a man completely curved in on himself. Scene two shifts to a radically contrasting vision of what? Not a human. There's no human on center stage in scene two. Who's on center stage in scene two? Come on, guys. God. God. We're looking at God. It's God himself and his beauty that occupies center stage and scenes too. And as the text advances in Psalm 36, what we do is receive and respond. How precious is your love, O oh God. You've given us a feast yourself. We delight in you. In your light, we see light. So do you see in scene two, it's not about me. It's about God and my response to him and simply the praise and the worship that is due his name. Zechariah 3 is, if, even, if possible, an even more dramatic visual scene because it is an actual prophetic vision. But the topic is different because the topic in Zechariah 3 is clear as a bell. It's salvation by grace alone. If you missed that in the reading, please go back and check out Zechariah 3. 
It's one of the greatest texts in Scripture describing radical saving grace. There's this man, Joshua, high priest, standing before God's throne, clothed in filthy garments. And he is being accused, and by, we might add accurately by Satan, of being dirty. And the angel of the Lord, the Old Testament phrase that's used so often to describe the second person of the Trinity, rebukes and silences the accusation and the accuser. And he says, the Lord rebuke you, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, guys, think about this. What happens when you stick your hand in a fire to pull out a burning coal before it's fully consumed by the flames? What happens? Ouch. <laughs> you get burned. And you can get badly burned. Who plucked Joshua out of the flames? Who got burned in the process? The angel of the Lord. Who plucked you out of the flames? And who got burned in the process? So the central actor in Zechariah 3 is really the same as in Psalm 36, the central, scene 2, the central actor is God. But this time the focus is on God's actions of grace. Scene 30, Psalm 36, it tells his, his majestic character and attributes. This is his actions of grace, his goodness in rescuing us. We respond to Psalm 36 with awe and worship. We respond to his actions of grace with gratitude and amazement. Behold the throne of God, before the throne of God. We have a strong and perfect plea. We just sang it. But hopefully you picked up that I didn't finish reading or describing Zechariah chapter 3. <laughs> because after Satan is silenced and banished and after Joshua is dramatically reclothed, there's a further word. Did you hear it? The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you right of access to among those who are standing here. Joshua has a particular calling, an opportunity, a, a light to bear, if you would. There's a role that he has to play, and that is as the high priest, and there's a particular promise made to him if he will keep the charges of God. And we see that the true operations of grace, of necessity, lead to a life and a lifestyle of faith and obedience that's consistent with our calling. And that's a consistent message of Scripture. Well, now, if you're tracking with me, you might stop me and say, wait a second, Bishop Steve, didn't the Ephesian church do that? Didn't they live out their faith? So why is God correcting them? Well, the text is clear. He's correcting them for what? What? Like a love, right? So they were living something, a lifestyle, but it was not rooted in love. Remember, God sees our heart, and apparently it is possible to live in right obedience lovelessly which begs the question of obedience in the first place, right? Because the first command is what? Come on, guys. Love. So if we are living lovelessly, then we are not really living in full obedience or in right obedience because we're not keeping the main thing the main thing, right? Love for God, love for each other. So to the solution to this possible tension, because I read all this and I think about it, and frankly, it creates a lot of, like, gosh, how do I walk, navigate this water? Well, I believe John chapter 14 gives us the answer to this potential conundrum. And I want to make two statements and then conclude by simply rereading the gospel passage. Here's my two statements. Here's my conclusion from, a few, from Revelation 2. As a disciple of Christ, you cannot love God without obeying God. Jesus says that. 
But as a disciple, you cannot rightly obey God without also loving him. Prioritizing an actual dynamic relationship with God who is not an idea or not a doctrine, but he is a cre our creator and our redeemer who deeply wants a personal relationship with him. Look at John chapter 14 and listen to the invitation to personal intimacy with God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. We prayed at the beginning of the service that this would be an outpouring of the spirit because we cannot live a step of our lives without the spirit's presence, without the companionship and the power of the spirit. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. So even though I'm leaving physically, the Spirit is here. And in some sense, there is this continuing presence of Christ in our lives that we can see. We can feel and touch in some actual way. In that day, you will know that I'm in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him, make myself real and visible and known. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you have here is not mine, but the father's who spoke, who sent me. As a disciple of Christ, you cannot love Christ without obeying Christ. As a disciple, you cannot rightly obey Christ without loving him. And the spawning ground of the entire conversation is what? Love. Love starts the transaction. Love drives the transaction. Love is the goal of the transaction. God's goal for his disciples is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's our open and full-hearted, wholehearted participation in the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ that calls us into love, purity, sincerity, earnestness of faith, good conscience. It all wraps together, people. Don't see these as divisible. In Christ, we obey because we love and we love because we obey. My suggestions regarding the Ephesian church, I think they had a sincere faith, of some, a, a, a clear faith. They, they knew truth. They had been purified because they were Christians. On one level, they probably had a clean conscience simply because they knew they were doing some things right and they weren't being condemned by, those, you know, by the fact that they were waffling on the faith or not standing firm for Christ. But if the goal is love, they were falling very short. Imagine a rigid, correct, sterile church, which is better, I have to say, than an incorrect church, right? But one that had forgotten the goal and the source, and the source and the goal. It starts with love, driven by love, ends in love.
Just as we might truly say that true grace is never alone, it calls us to a life of godly works, we can also say that godly works are never alone. They circle around a heart of love. So what I'm going to encourage the confirmands and those being received, and in fact the whole church and myself, is this. Make the goal of our disciple life nothing less than the love of God who calls us to obedience that includes worship, Psalm 36, awe, gratitude, feasting, rejoicing with humility in the abundance of his grace and personal intimacy. Prioritize that. Intentionalize that. Philippians chapter 3, Paul, Paul says, I cast everything aside for the greater goal of knowing Christ. It was his heart passion. He made time for it. He decided. He pursued it. He hungered for it. May we be the same in Christ. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.